the Sixth Amendment, our right of confrontation, and remote proceedings in criminal trials. Are we protecting the constitutional rights of defendants in court? Professor Andrea Roth from the University of California Berkeley School of Law joins us. I'm Lawrence Coletti, and this is Legal Talk Today. Welcome back, listeners. I hope you're having a great day out there. We're long overdue to cover this topic that we're covering today. We have a wonderful guest that's going to help guide us through. But first, we need to thank our sponsor for keeping the pods casting, NOTA. NOTA is powered by M&T Bank because you went to law school to be a lawyer, not an accountant. Take advantage of NOTA, a no-cost IOLTA management tool that helps solo and small law firms track client funds down to the penny. Visit trustnota.com forward slash legal to learn more. That's known as spelled N-O-T-A. Terms and conditions may apply. All right. Say hello to our guest, Professor Andrea Roth from the University of California, Berkeley School of Law. Welcome to the show, Professor. Hi, thanks. It's great to be here. No, thank you for being here. You know, we've uh, we've tiptoed into this issue a little bit through 2020 into 2021, and I really wanted to get in and do a deep dive on the confrontation clause with all of these remote court proceedings, you know, civil law, criminal courts. And uh, even early in the pandemic, I had one of my uh, friends uh, from law school, Judge Scott Schlegel of the 24th Judicial District in Jefferson Parish, Louisiana, talk about how they were using video for some of the, some aspects of the uh, proceedings in criminal courts. But it wasn't until recently when we did a, um, I did a seven show series or seven episode series on the Derek Chauvin trial. And, you know, you did not get to see the jury, you know, in, in that, uh, in those videos that were online. And a lot of the people were masked and you couldn't really tell everyone's reaction. And so that got me thinking that it's probably time to do a confrontation clause episode to talk about this. And so, Professor, I want to start with a really basic question. And uh, you know, that's just kind of a layman's explanation. What is the Confrontation Clause, and why is it so critically important for criminal defendants? Well, the Confrontation Clause is part of the Sixth Amendment to the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, and it gives defendants the right to be confronted with the witnesses against him at trial. And generally, that's been interpreted by the Supreme Court to mean live physical confrontation, where you can look your accuser and other witnesses in the eye, so to speak, and also a right of cross-examination to ask them questions on the witness stand and to have them be under oath at trial. And the idea behind the confrontation clause is, is that forcing witnesses to give their testimony live in court allows defendants to test witnesses' reliability by exposing inconsistencies and lies. It allows the jury, the fact finder, to see the witness's demeanor and better assess credibility. The idea is that if you see somebody not looking you in the eye or if they are sweating profusely, you know, maybe they're more likely to be lying, that sort of thing. And also to have them come into court and give their accusation might deter lies and mistakes by impressing on the witness the importance of the proceedings. So that's the idea behind requiring somebody to give their testimony live in court before the defendant. There's so much there with uh, body language, you know, just the sort of those nonverbal cues. You can really tell the credibility of someone. Do they look uncomfortable on the stand? Do you think that they're uh, lying? And so I think so very important. But uh, there's a history to the right of confrontation. And, uh, you know, many of our listeners, um, you know, in terms of history of our law, we got a lot of what we have today from the old world. In our case, um, England provided a lot of common law. And so there was this right of confrontation professor that was part of the common law. And then we imported some of that. 
And then we applied, you know, Constitution and the amendments, the Sixth Amendment, as you uh, previously mentioned. But we've also had some case law development. And we've perfected some of these uh, finer points on it as time has gone on. So, Professor, with that in mind, can you walk us through real briefly just the history of how the right of confrontation developed in the United States? The history of the Confrontation Clause in particular is a little bit hazy. We do know a few things. We know that the framers cared about the right to physically confront your accusers, and in particular, the trial of Sir Walter Raleigh in 1603 for conspiring to kill King, King James I was seen, you know, it's later seen by historians as a travesty of justice because Sir Walter Raleigh wasn't able to confront the main accuser against him, whom he believed had been forced into confessing. And so we also know that the framers had a disdain for the English practice in the 1500s and 1600s of using witness affidavits, you know, sworn statements as a substitute for their live testimony at trial. The Supreme Court has called this trial by affidavit. And the idea is that that's the primary target of the Sixth Amendment is to ensure that we don't have trial by affidavit in this country. But I will add that some new histories suggest that the right of confrontation was largely a right to physically confront your accuser and not a right of cross-examination, and that the right of cross-examination developed later as the legal profession grew in prominence. And so, you know, lawyers love to cross-examine. It's called the lawyerly art of cross-examination. So there's some historical support for the idea that the right of cross-examination has been seen as more important of late, in part because of the rise of lawyers. As a lawyer, I feel like I have to put that out there and ad admit that we might have something to do with how it's been interpreted oh, over certainly, time. Oh, certainly, certainly. <laughs> <laughs> and then the Sixth Amendment was, was ratified in 1791. And since then, there have been a few different controversies in the case law. One is about what counts as confrontation. So if you can ask somebody questions, but you're hidden behind a screen so that they can't see you, is that good enough? to satisfy the Confrontation Clause. Another question is, what is a witness? Do you have a right to have anybody who's accusing you be on the witness stand, or are there some exceptions to that right? So for example, there's something called a dying declaration, where somebody who believes they're about to die you know, says who their killer was, let's say. And let's say they die and they're not available at trial to be called as a witness, and you're now being tried for killing them, can their dying declaration come in against you at trial? Well, the answer is yes, even though you don't have a right to physically confront them or cross-examine them because they're deceased, they're not there. So there are some exceptions, historical exceptions to the Confrontation Clause that the Supreme Court has said, you know, the framers knew about and, you know, would be willing to allow people to be tried based on certain types of, of what we call hearsay. Well, Professor, let's take some of that analysis and apply it towards what's been going on, you know, because of the COVID-19 pandemic. You know, obviously, courts were closed down and these dockets began to pile up. And, you know, obviously, the courts, uh, the people that are involved, the plaintiffs, the defendants, 
the criminally accused, you know, they're they're all you know waiting for for all of this to uh, to basically untraffic jam. And so, uh, and we've asked this question, you know, uh, throughout 2020 into 2021. But from from where you sit uh, with your expertise, what if your observations uh, been? You know, obviously piled up court docket. Courts have tried to mitigate this through uh, remote proceedings, but. How has that impacted, uh, in particular, the criminal courts and the defendants that are wrapped up in that? Well, I think COVID has shown us a bit about what is and isn't important about live court proceedings in the same way that it's shown us what is and isn't important about live work and live school and so many other things. So with respect to court proceedings, I think there have been some silver linings to the pandemic, including that there are lots of proceedings that really should be remote, you know, status hearings and lots of proceedings where people have to take off work to come in just for a short court proceeding that's pretty administrative. People can do that now remotely so that they don't have to take off work, rely on unreliable bus transportation and things like that. So I think it's really great for defendants and victims and their families and witnesses and everybody involved not to have to come to court so often. On the other hand, I think that it's shown us that there really is something lost when people don't testify in person, people don't come together in person and adjudicate disputes in person, looking at each other and having to engage each other in real time. And I think that trials are one of those things. Criminal trials need to be in person. So the way that most of this has been dealt with through COVID is not to have remote testimony for the most part, unless the defendant agrees to it. Instead, the way that it's been dealt with for the most part is to continue trials, is to say, look, we can't have this trial remotely because there were too many rights of the defendant that would be jeopardized. So instead, we're going to wait six months or we're going to wait a year to have the trial. And, And that has its own set of problems. There's a speedy trial guarantee in the Sixth Amendment. And lots of defendants have said, you shouldn't wait 12 months to try me. I'm in jail. I'm sitting here waiting for my case to be called, and it violates my speedy trial right. On the other hand, I also don't want to have a trial that's over Zoom where I can't look the witnesses in the eye in an actual courtroom and where the jury can't see them in the courtroom. So I I think for the most part, we haven't had a lot of, you know, remote testimony as a way of getting around the pandemic, I think what we've mostly done is continued trials. Yeah, yeah, I read this great piece in uh, preparation for the show today in The Atlantic uh, that kind of follows along with what you're saying. It was a piece done by uh, Eric Scigliano. I think that's how you pronounce his name, but it was titled Zoom Court is Changing How Justice is Served. And I'll put this in the show notes uh, for our listeners out there if they want to read for themselves. But you know, it talked about pros. You know, it talked about uh, higher juror participation in Texas. You know, it was easier for jurors to come on and be part of uh, voir dire and, uh, you know, the, or the early jury selection process, but, you know, kind of work with their schedule a lot better. Uh, there's also higher instances of defendants showing up for those early proceedings in New Jersey and Michigan. But on the con side and kind of what you were talking about in terms of being able to look the witness in the eye, face your accuser, 
One of the Illinois studies uh, showed that it was like for 10 years they were doing the, uh, the bail hearings via, I guess it was closed caption TV. And what they found is almost immediately when that program started, the, the cost of bail went up because there's sort of an empathy loss. That was the theory was that when you're disconnected watching it through TV as opposed to being in the room, watching the defendant come up, the defendant with their family, watching their mannerisms, you become less empathetic. As a result, the, uh, the cost of bail went up. So I think there's definitely some cons. I think you're right there. So, well, Professor, based on your experience and what you've observed, and that this is uh, you know an area that uh, you uh, give great study to, congratulations, you're now ruler for the day. <laughs> so, uh, if you have one mission, though. One mission is to protect our right of confrontation. Now, we're still working through a pandemic, and there's a lot of economies of scale that can come from these, um, these remote proceedings. And so if you were to build a remote proceeding, what would you allow? What would you not allow? How do you create the most ideal ideal circumstance in a not ideal world? Well, I think there would be a line that I wouldn't cross, and that is that there would be no remote trials unless the defendant consented to it. So I think that when the issue is the guilt or innocence of a criminally accused person, it's really got to be in person for all of those reasons that you said. And there are plenty of advantages to remote proceedings, but the trial itself, where you have a right to uh, have it be in public, where you're going to be judged by a jury of your peers, where it could be a matter of life and death or life in prison or many years in prison, the stakes are just too high to have Zoom trials in criminal courts. That said, I think there are other ways of meaningfully allowing the defendant to rebut the government's case that could be done before trial or could be done in ways that don't necessarily just involve cross-examining somebody at trial. It could be requiring prior statements of witnesses to be disclosed. There are also lots of witnesses these days that aren't human. A lot of our evidence in the 21st century is coming in the form of machine testimony or algorithms or even artificial intelligence. And that's something that can't be put on the stand under oath and cross-examined and physically confronted. So I think one major, one major challenge for the future is not simply pandemics, but machines and the changing nature of evidence itself. And we're going to have to think about confrontation in a broader way as a right to meaningfully refute the government's evidence rather than simply the right to cross-examine a person on the witness stand. We're going to have to think creatively about what confrontation is in an era of machines. Well, I want to close it out with just a couple of questions about a non-related case. And speaking of that developing case law that further develops our right of confrontation, you were recently part of an, uh, is it amicus or amicus brief? How, how do you say that, Professor? Uh, <laughs> you know, I've heard it both. I say amicus, but, you know, tomato, tomato. I'm going to go with that because for me, amicus is a lot easier to say. So <laughs> well, anyway, you, you were part of this amicus brief uh, for a case called Hemp Hill versus New York. And so this is a case that was uh, recently granted review by the Supreme Court. Now, this is going to ask uh, another question about the right of confrontation. So just in a minute or less, can you give us the brief facts of that case and then tell us that question? How is it going to further define the right of confrontation? Yeah, this case involves a question of when a defendant forfeits his right of confrontation. So everybody agrees that the witness's statement that came in in Mr. Hemphill's case 
was the type of statement that normally would have to be given live in court. And the question is whether Mr. Hemphill forfeited that right. And the quick version of the facts is Mr. Hemphill was accused in in the tragic killing of a a child caught in the crossfire of a fight in the Bronx involving a nine millimeter handgun. Several eyewitnesses said that the shooter was this other person, another man named Morris. And police found a nine millimeter cartridge on Morris's nightstand in his home the next day, as well as a 357 Magnum handgun. And the state tried this other person, Morris, for the killing, but the jury hung. It couldn't agree. And meanwhile, the suspicion fell on the petitioner, Mr. Hemphill. The state then tried him. At Mr. Hemphill's trial, not surprisingly, his defense was that the real shooter was Morris, the guy that they originally accused of the shooting. And he, Hemphill, called a police officer as a witness to point out that police had found a 9mm cartridge in Mr. Morris's home, which was all true. The government argued that that defense left a misleading impression because, in fact, Mr. Morris had taken a plea in which he told the court that his gun was the 357 Magnum, and even though this 9mm cartridge was found in his home. And so what the court allowed the government to do was to put on a hearsay statement from Mr. Morris, his guilty plea statement in court, where he said that this other gun was his, which suggested by implication that he wasn't the shooter. That sort of statement, some, you know, other person's sworn testimony, affidavit, if you will. Remember, trial by affidavit is what the framers cared about. Well, they would never have allowed this sort of statement from Mr. Morris to come in without a chance to actually get Mr. Morris on the witness stand subject to confrontation and cross-examination. But the argument here was that Mr. Hemphill, by putting on this defense that accused Mr. Morris and pointed out that, you know, this cartridge was found in his home, somehow opened the door to this otherwise unconstitutional statement coming in. And Mr. Hemphill is arguing, it will be arguing to the Supreme Court, that isn't the case, that simply putting on a defense like that does not open the door to unconfronted statements coming in that would otherwise violate the Confrontation Clause. And uh, and my amicus brief um, supported that position, supported the position of Mr. Hemphill, that, you know, there are some things that might open the door. There are certain things that are blatantly unfair for one party or the other to do. Like if you try to make it seem like a piece of evidence says one thing where it clearly says something else, then the other side might have some ability to correct that misimpression in front of the jury. But simply putting on a defense should not be enough to open the door for the government putting on unconfronted, what is essentially an unconfronted affidavit from an absent witness, somebody who may well have been the person who actually committed the crime. So I think this case raises the issue under under facts that that show the, the potential abuse of allowing this type of evidence to come in unconfronted. Well, with that in mind, uh, putting our predictions hat on, what do you think the result of the case will be? You know, there's a lot in the news about the 6-3 supermajority of conservative justices and how what that means for um, abortion and so many other issues. 
With this particular issue, I think that, you know, a betting person would say that Mr. Hemphill has a good chance of, of winning the case. Justice Scalia wrote the seminal case upon which Mr. Hemphill's argument is based. And there was a case 10 years ago, Giles versus California, that raised a similar issue about forfeiture. And the conservative justices said forfeiture is very, very narrow, and we will not consider your right of confrontation forfeited unless it falls under some narrow forfeiture doctrine that existed at the founding. And assuming that the conservative justices now follow that same line, I would say that Hemphill has has a good chance of winning. Well, Professor, I really enjoyed our conversation today. Thank you so much for joining us. Great. Thanks so much. And thank you listeners for tuning in. If you like this episode, please write us a review in your favorite podcasting app. It helps the show and it's much appreciated. And also one more thank you to the fine folks at Nota for sponsoring our show. You can find them at trustnota.com forward slash legal. That's Nota spelled N-O-T-A. And last but never least, thank you to our team producer, Molly McDonough and our LT and audio crew for getting it done every week. You're the best. This has been Legal Talk Today. I'm Lawrence Clutty. Have a great day, everybody. (laughs) 